Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you for that introduction, Roshmoli. That was amazing. Uh, so we're going to speak today about the etrog, uh, and I'm going to speak about how a Chinese fruit became a Jewish symbol. How a Chinese fruit, the etrog, the most Jewish of fruits, how it became um, a Jewish symbol. So this is the etrog, the etrog many of us know and love, that nice yellow lemony fruit, uh, sometimes a little bumpy, it smells really nice. And once a year in September, sometimes October, it goes on sale in an, an etrog, in a lula of an etrog market, just by itself. Unlike any other fruit on earth, probably, where you just sell one fruit. It's a very unique thing to sell just one fruit. And here we have in Brooklyn, New York, an etrog salesman, an etrog salesman. And if you take a very nice close look, each of these fruits is $100, OK? These are the ones on the, on the desk. The ones in the back were three to $500. And the most expensive one I've encountered was about $1,300, $1,400. Okay? So the etrog is a very important Jewish fruit. And importance and money usually go hand in hand. So the reason the etrog is the most important Jewish fruit is because of this, the lulav and etrog bundle. What we see here is our lulav. Um, the palm frond, the willows, the myrtle, and then our etrog. And then what we have here is a nice young man praying at the Kotel, the Wailing Wall, with his lulav and etrog bundle. And this all takes place once a year on the festival of Sukkot. This fruit, which could have cost $100, the day after Sukkot is worth uh, a penny at most. Okay? So it's, a, it's an interesting economic market. Um, so moving on, what I'm going to talk to you about today is this journey, the journey between China and Israel. So I'm going to show you how the etrog comes from a place called Yunnan, China, and then made its way to northern India, and then Iran, and then finally Israel. That's 4,000 miles. So how did this etrog make this journey of 4,000 miles, and how did it do it so anciently that it became a really great Jewish fruit? So this is Yunnan, China. And you can see the nice pagoda here and the, and the Chinese architecture. And over here are the mountains. We'll speak about that soon. So this is where the etrog comes from. It grows naturally in the forest here. And it made its way to Israel, where it was on the coins of, of the, the ancient Jewish coins. Here we have a nice etrog. Here's some lulavs. Here's a nice etrog in a mosaic. And here we have a menorah flanked by two etrogen. So this is the story I'm going to tell from China to Israel. So it all starts with a man named Nikolai Vavilov at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, a Russian botanist. And in the wake of Darwin, he had this idea that every fruit, every plant, comes from somewhere on Earth. 
Every plant has its home. Uh, the person who drove me here said that the cacti in this region only grow in this region, right? So, so everything comes from a certain place. And we know that there are different areas of different plants and fruits come from. So for example, North America is actually where blueberries and strawberries come from. Avocados actually come from Mexico. That's where they actually come from. Watermelons from Africa, and so on and so forth. And citrus fruits, all citrus fruits, come from a southwest region in China called Yunnan. Yunnan. And Yunnan is basically a number of long parallel river valleys coming out of the Himalayas. And you can see here, this is, I, I think this is twice as tall as the Grand Canyon. I'm not exactly sure, but I think so. This majestic valley here. And what we have here is that in each area, in each river valley, a citrus fruit would grow and evolve in its own way. And then the next valley, a citrus fruit would grow and evolve in its own way. And the next one, so that you get all this diversity in one little small area. It's a great place for evolutionary diversity. And for those of you who know the book or the movie Lost Horizon, Shangri-La, Shangri-La was actually based off of Yunnan because it's right out off the Himalayas right here, the cold Himalayas, and it's this beautiful, lush, this beautiful, lush um, river valleys. Okay, So this is the Shangri-La. And citrus grows freely and wild in Yunnan, China. It grows the etrog, which is called a citron in, in English. The, it grows freely and wild. Here we see a, uh, a man eating an etrog that was growing in his backyard. Huge. Yeah, huge. We even get bigger ones. Um, and there are 23 different cultivars, 23 different cultivars. And what that means is that there's so much genetic diversity that there are 23 different types of etrog in this one little region. Right? Israel maybe has seven or, or eight or ten. In Yunnan, China, we have, we have 23 in this one little area. Some of them are called doghead, zhang water, ninja giant, persistent stigma, pumpkin, weishan bullet, and so on and so forth. So these are the different types of genetic diversity that we have in Yunnan, China. These are growing wild in Yunnan. Just like the cacti grow wild here, these are growing wild in Yunnan. And these look very much like the type of etrog we have today with the, the pitum, the little top, the pointy top. These are growing wild. And then here we have um, a Chinese uh, farmer with the ninja giant, the largest of all etrogum, about the size of a watermelon. right? And then here we have, uh, this is called a half-half citron, a half-half etrog, because it starts getting those hands. We'll talk about those hands in a moment. So in ancient texts, in ancient Chinese texts, we actually have from the first millennia before the Common Era mention different types of citrus fruits, uh, eight or 10 different types of citrus fruits. And that shows you that it's indigenous in the lands. When you have eight or 10 different words for different types of citrus fruits, you know that there's a lot of diversity. And the most ancient text we have is from about the fifth century before the Common Era, where it talks about the barbarians, the Tao barbarians over here, are bringing a tribute of oranges to the emperor. So here they are, each of them bringing their oranges. And they're bringing their oranges to the emperor. So this is the earliest mention in the Chinese text. We don't have so many ancient, ancient Chinese texts, but some of the early ones mention the fruit. And today in China, the etrog is still very important. But it's also important here. This is, not many people have seen this. I actually came across this in the supermarket about a year ago. So that you, you might find these. This is called, does anybody know what this is? This is called the Buddha's hand citron. The Buddha's hand because it looks like it has fingers. Do you see those? See the fingers? 
Um, so this is called, well, in, in, in China it's not called this, it's called Foshao. And this is technically, from a genetic standpoint, this is an etrog, genetically speaking. You could take the pollen from this tree and counterpollinate with the etrog you buy on Sukkot. It's the same exact thing. I wouldn't recommend bringing this to synagogue, but it's the same exact thing. Um, and in China, this is used for many, many purposes, especially for medicinal purposes. So this is, um, this is a very popular fruit in, ancient, in China. And here what we can see is etrog, which is called jingwan. Jingwan, over here the jingwan, is used for med Chinese medicine purposes uh, for things such as intestinal indigestion. indigestion, things like that. Indigestion. So you can actually buy this on eBay. You can, for uh, $23, get dried up etrog. Right? We see this. We don't really see etrog. But, but from a Chinese medicinal purpose, this is jingwan. This is the etrog. Okay, so what we have here, and there's another purpose also, is something called oolong tea. I've never had it. I'm not entirely sure if the oolong tea is the fruit or if it's the leaves. This kind of looks a little fruit to me. It's very thick. So I'm not sure what oolong tea is exactly, but it comes from the etrog tree or the fruit. And so the, um, in ancient China and in even modern China today, the etrog is a very important um, cultural part of the, of the picture. So the question I want to ask at each stage in this talk is how valuable is the etrog? And I don't just mean money. I just mean in terms of cultural esteem. So how valuable is the jingwan, the Chinese word for etrog? So in the ancient world, we had some texts that mentioned oranges and then mentioned the etrog centuries later. We get the feeling that the etrog isn't really important. It's not mentioned a lot. It's there, but it's not mentioned. Um, it has no real high status, and that makes sense because if you're in Yunnan, China, where all citrus lives, it's a tough market. There's oranges, there's pomelos, there's kumquats, there's um, limes, there's lemons. There's so many different types of citrus fruits that are so much more enjoyable than an etrog. You can get fruit out of it. You can actually eat it. So the, the etrog isn't really valuable. So how valuable would it be? If you go to a market, you'd say, where's the etrog? I guess the, the seller would say, Go out the back in the in the forest and pick one. You know, I'm not even going to sell it to you, right? That that's how um, that's that's the cultural esteem, I think. Okay, so we started over here in Yunnan, China. Now we're slowly going to make our way over to India, northern India. So let's speak about uh, two people, Sushruta and Karaka. Sushruta, who was about from 1000 BCE to 500 BCE, that's about the first temple period in Judaism. The, the period of the first temple was an ancient Indian doctor, before the term doctor ever existed. He was, historically speaking, the first person to ever do eye surgery. The first person to ever do eye surgery. Uh, and Sushruta and Karaka, also another physician, they would pass down teachings and teachings and teachings about their, the material medica, what fruits are going to help um, what fruits are going to help you with what uh, maladies. And here we actually see an ancient Indian text, the Karaka Samhita, and the etrog is mentioned about 40 times in each. The ancient is called Matalunga, Matalunga or Matalungaka. So the Matalunga is, is mentioned 40 times in each of these, and it's used for the same kind of thing as we saw in modern Chinese medicine, but even much more so about indigestion, uh, bowel issues and things like that. So this is actually from a, I got this yesterday, 
off um, a website called Live Ayurveda Life. Uh, would someone want to uh, volunteer to read what the etrog is used for? Can we get a volunteer? Suzanne, would you like to read it? Sure. Leaves are slightly warmed and applied over painful organs. The seeds are made into paste and applied externally to skin effect upflexions and inflammation. Seed shares? Seed shares? Yeah, it's, it's, it's not American English. Topically <laughs> applied to lesions of spine. Okay, so we've got external pains, right? Okay, if you could continue with. The fruit is a useful counter alcoholism and an acid fruit, juice fruit, is separately to cheat excess alcohol consumption and its complications. Fruit in general is used against intoxication, unconsciousness, and various other uh, elements. Right, so if somebody is drunk and wants to wake up, the etrog would help them. Or if somebody doesn't want to get drunk, don't, you should eat the etrog, right? And then here, the most important one. Fruit juice is given as useful as aspirin. A Pepsi, yeah, right, yes. yeah, spell this wrong. Abdominal colic, hemorrhoids, and other similar disease of gastrointestinal tracts. The juice is, of the fruit is useful in respiratory disease, especially cough, asthma, bronchitis, hiccups, and also throat infections. It does everything. Great. So it does everything, right? Um, but it's very good. So this is actually a modern take on sushruta and karaka. This is the same thing that sushruta and karaka were talking about uh, in the first millennium before the Common Era. So that you know, if you have alcoholism, you should use the, the fruit. If you need the, if you if you have um, vomiting, take the seeds. You know, if you have the if you have a, a disease on your skin, you know, use the, the rind. All these different types, these all come together um, in the in the culture of Ayurveda, uh, ancient Indian medicine. Okay. Now, not only is the etrog important in the medicine of ancient India, it's even important in the religious iconography. Over here, we actually have an image. This is from the Met in New York. And this is Shiva, the deity Shiva. And he is holding in his left hand an etrog. Okay? And the reason he's holding the etrog is because if you look here, if you cut open an etrog, there's no fruit in many of them, many of the etrogs. There's no fruit. Some do. The ones, especially today, that they sell do. But more of the wild ones, you don't, have, you don't have much or any fruit. And so really it is, if you think about it, it is just a capsule for seeds. And seeds is fertility. And fertility is life. And so the etrog is really just seen as a, as a fruit of fertility, a fruit of life. And then there are other images uh, of the etrog where in the other hand, one hand's an etrog, and in the other hand is a mongoose vomiting jewels. And that is wealth. The mongoose is vomiting the jewels, giving out wealth, and the etrog is the fertility. So now if we ask ourselves, we're going through this story, we're going through this journey, how valuable is a matalunga? Right? How valuable is a matalunga? So we go into our marketplace in ancient India, and we're actually going to see a box of etrogium. It's not in the forest growing in the back. It's important. You need this for your, for your medicinal purposes. I'm going to sell it. Is it going to be really expensive? No. But it's going to be something like an Advil or a Tylenol, right? You need it. It's part of daily life, okay? So that's, that's how we got from China to northern India. And the way that the etrog spread from China to northern India was probably just naturally. Birds, people, just natural spread, natural spread. Okay, let's move on now to, we're going to make our way over here to Iran, okay? Iran. So... 
the Iranians, the ancient Persians, really took gardening very seriously. Gardening. The kings were very, very devout gardeners, very seriously. And they had these gardens, which were called charbag, and they were very rectangular in shape with water coming out of each side, right? These are the four, the four rivers, so to speak, come to the middle of the garden. And this is called a paradise garden. It's called paradise, and that's where we get the name paradise from. We get the name paradise from this Persian garden. And if many of you, if you might have a Persian carpet at home, maybe take a close look at it. Many Persian carpets are actually these gardens. Here you have that, that rectangle at the middle with the four rivers coming out of it. And then inside are fish, and over here are birds and trees, and so on and so forth. And so it's part of the culture of having these types of paradise gardens. Okay? Um, interestingly, the most famous place of a Persian paradise garden is not in Persia. It's in the Taj Mahal in, in India. So this is the Taj Mahal. And then over here, you have that nice rectangular with the four, the four coming out together. That's the Paradise Garden. Okay? So why this is important is because in the 5th century before the Common Era, Darius, King Darius, the king of the world, the great king of Persia, he came and he conquered up to the Indus River and he conquered into India. Okay? So Darius conquers into India and... At that point, he starts taking Indian fruits and trees to put in his paradise gardens. Okay? They had, a, they, had a, they had a rule. You could only put things in your garden that you controlled. And there was this one very fancy type of apple or something in, in Greece that everyone talked about it. And the Persian king said, we're not going to grow that apple in, in, our, uh, in our gardens until we conquer Greece. And when we conquer it, we're going to grow it. So now that Darius conquered parts of India, the etrog all of a sudden comes into play. And so the etrog is going to be start growing in the Persian gardens. And to this day, etrogums still grow in Iran, and it's part of the culinary culture. This is called Muraba-e-Balang, Persian etrog jam. And this is basically the same jam a lot of people make with their etrogium after Sukkot anyway. For some reason, often associated with bubbies. Has anyone heard this? My bubby, my grandma used to make jam. I don't know. It, it seems to be a thing like that. Um, so, but it's the same recipe, really. But over there, it's just called um, jam. They make jam out of a trogum. And this is an advertisement in an Iranian supermarket. When I was writing my book, I emailed the supermarket asking to use this image for copyright purposes to put in the book. And my Gmail told me that we're having trouble delivering your message. And then two days later, it said, we're having trouble delivering your message. And then three days later after that, it said, your message could not be delivered. And I have a feeling I'm on like some government watch list of like Iranian you know, spy kind of stuff. So, but basically, the email was very kosher. It was saying, Can, what's up with this beautiful picture? I like it. OK. So <clears throat> this is the Iranian jam that you buy in the supermarket. That's that joke. Right? There it is, right there. OK. Another thing that the, Iranian, um, that the Iranian part of this picture is important for is that in the ancient text, it was called Wadrang or Vajrang, Vajrang. And that's important because that's where the name Etrog eventually came from. Wadrang became something like Adrang, became Atrang, became Etrog, became Etrog. Okay? And this, is actually, um, this can actually be seen in texts themselves. 
Could we get another volunteer to read this text? Would, would, would you want to read it? Okay, great. Great. So call it etro, call it etroga, but don't call it etronga, right? Etronga. And I highlighted this, this red N, this etronga. That comes from the Persian word wadreng. See that? Wadreng, right? That's where it comes from. So the Jewish, the Jewish um, or Aramaic name that we know and love actually comes from this Persian part of the story. And that's not actually it. That's where the scientific name comes from. The etrog is called Citrus Medica. Citrus Medica. Um, and here we see here, Citrus Medica. And some people think, oh, it's Medica because of all the medicinal purposes we saw in India, all the medicinal purposes we saw in China. No, it has nothing to do with medicine. Uh, Pliny was calling it Citrus Medica because it's the Citronia de Medi. It's from the Medes. And the Medes were the people who lived in Iran. Parasumadai, Persia and Media. So it's the Median etrog, or the Median apple, so some people called it. So this is what, what the Persian part of the story tells us, is that it eventually made its way over. So now the question is, is how valuable was a wadring? Right? How valuable was a wadring? So in China, it was growing out back. It wasn't important. In India, it was in the stall. In, in, the, in, the, in the cellar stall. Here, it's in the king's garden. It's an ornamental tree. And actually, as I, was drive, as, as I got a ride here, I saw many citrus trees growing along in the gardens, right? And the person who, wrote, who drove me here said, oh, they're very tart and sour. Nobody eats them. It's just like the etrog. It's for beautiful purposes. It's a beautiful tree, right? And that's what the, and that's what the Persians were doing in their gardens. They'd say, hey, did you see this new tree I got? Did you see this amazing new tree I got? Um, that was like the, the Mercedes, the Teslas. This was the Tesla back then. It was check out this tree I got. Check out this Tesla. Okay, so the wadring was very important. Now we're going to start getting ourselves over to Israel. Okay? We're getting ourselves over to Israel. And remember, we're still in the ancient period before the Common Era. We're in the first, second temple periods. So let's see what happens. Okay, so... What happens here is the Persians have a policy about their gardens. The Persians have a policy about their gardens. And this is given to us by an ancient Greek writer named Xenophon. So what does Xenophon tell us? And Cyrus gave orders to all the satraps he sent out to imitate in everything that they saw him do. Have paradises too. Keep wild animals in them. Okay, so Cyrus is telling his governors, his satraps, He's saying, not only do I have to have gardens, you paradise gardens, you have to have paradise gardens. Okay, not only me in this in the capital, you where you live. Okay, thank you. Wherever the Persian king goes, he is concerned that there should be gardens which are called paradisoi, full of all the beautiful and fine plants that grow on earth, and he spends most of his time in them unless the time of the year prevents it. Thank you. So he's. Everywhere there need to be gardens, okay? So it's not just in the capital. Everywhere he goes, the king wants to make sure that this governor has a garden, that governor has a garden, this governor has a garden, that governor. And, and that's important because 
the Persians ruled the whole world. In the book of Esther, it says, Mi paras ad madai, mi hodu ad kush, I'm sorry, from, from India to Ethiopia. So Israel is in that lot, right? Israel is going to have a paradise garden, and in that paradise garden is going to be an etrog, right? And so what we find, archaeological speaking, is that in Ramat Rachel, which used to be on the outside of Jerusalem, is now part of Jerusalem because the city grew and grew, archaeologists have found an ancient Persian outpost with, lo and behold, a paradise garden. Okay? With a paradise garden. And um, the paradise garden was about four acres large. And it's the only garden we know of in the ancient Israel, the only garden we know of. And what the archaeologists found was there was this area called Pool Number Two. And in Pool Number Two, uh, an archaeologist had a genius idea. She said, this pool was plastered in the ancient world. Let's give it a date. December 2nd, uh, 422 BCE. On December 2nd, 422 BCE, this pool was plastered. That means that for about 12 hours, the plaster was wet and pollen got stuck in it. And then for the rest of its life, for the next 2,500 years, it was rock hard. But for, for, for 12 hours, pollen got stuck. Let's break it down and see what pollen was in there. And she found, what she found was, this is the first three here, was the ancient pollen. These are things she found. And then everything down here was modern pollen. And if you look here, this row A, going all the way down, is very similar. Row B is very similar. Row C is very similar. These are all etrog. So she found etrog pollen from the second temple period in a Persian garden. And that's the linchpin. That's how the etrog made its way to the land of Israel. There were actually 11 other species that she found, such as fig and, and lily and cedars of Lebanon and all these great things. But the etrog was the most important one for our purposes. And so at that point in time, once it got to Israel, I'm going to just give you a very shorthanded thing. We're going to delve deep into it right in, in just a moment. Once it got this way to Israel, it became the Jewish fruit. It became, on this mosaic here, the nice etrog. On this coin here, we have the two etrogim, um, and it became the Jewish fruit. That's how the Chinese fruit became the Jewish fruit. But we need to slow down the tape a little bit. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. How did this happen? How did it become the lulav and etrog of the Bible? Okay, So it's in the land of Israel, it becomes the Jewish root, but we need to kind of slow it down. How did it become the, the biblical fruit? How did it become Jewish, so to speak? We know it's in the land, but how did it become Jewish? Okay, can I get a volunteer to read Leviticus 2340? Would... Yeah, great. On the first day of Sukkot, you shall take choice tree fruit, perias hadar, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall live in Sukkot for seven days. All citizens of Israel shall live in Sukkot. Excellent, thank you. So you're supposed to bring all these branches and things, right? And this choice tree fruit, Priyatsadar, this beautiful tree fruit, fruit of the beautiful tree, and you live in your Sukkot and you celebrate. Like, what's going on? How did this become the etrog? How is this the etrog? The etrog is going to become these three words, choice tree fruit or the beautiful, tree, the beautiful fruit. 
Okay, so in order to understand that, we need to understand what Sukkot was like before the Etrog. Ancient history, first temple history. <clears throat> so the three festivals in the Jewish calendar, before everything changed with the modern world, right? The three festivals in the Jewish calendar are Passover, Shavuot weeks, and Sukkot. Passover takes place during the barley harvest in April, May. It's a harvest festival. Shavuot takes place during the wheat harvest in June, July. It's a, it's a wheat festival. And Sukkot takes place during the tree fruit harvest in September, October. It's a fruit festival. So the, all the festivals of ancient Israel in the Torah are really harvest festivals. It's an agricultural religious calendar. All festivals, including Sukkot. It's when the fruits were ready. Okay? And there was an um, um, ethnographer in the early 20th century who was really interesting. His name was Gustav Dahlman. And he went around and he looked at all the farmers and he saw what they did, how they did things. He would ask them, well, what tools do you use when you plow? What do you call the tools? How do you build them? Where do you, how much do they cost? All this. And he has this eight-volume work about um, Arbeit und Zitta in Palestina, um, work and customs in Palestine. And what he does is he explains everything about uh, the way of life living on the land. And he has this really interesting quote. And he says, and... Between August and October, when the ripe grapes and figs need to be washed night and day, the farmer lives with his whole family in the vineyards, which are also fig orchards. There he wrecks the sukkah out of some poles, usually on a roughly built watchtower that always stands there, and covers it with leafy branches or reeds. Living under the sukkah means a joyful time during which there is no lack of special songs and people eat their fill of fruit. Thank you. So... We're talking about August and October, okay? So right around the time of Sukkot, okay, between August and September, okay? The ripe grapes are, are, need to be watched, so they sit in a sukkah. The sukkah is you're going to watch and guard your fruit, right? And then you spend a few months out there. You're not in your house. You're out in the fields. And then your sukkah, you cover it with leafy branches, and then when everything is good, it's a joyous time and people eat their fill of fruit. You eat the fruit that you just, that you just grew. That's what, and these aren't Jewish people. This is what the farmers in the land were doing in the early 20th century. Okay, This is what the farmers were doing. And this is what a sukkah would have looked like. Nice and leafy. The leaves are, of course, because you need shade. right? You need shade. You're out there all day. Nice and leafy. Here, this is an especially leafy one. And this is lifted up high off the ground so that you get more air coming in. Very cool. Okay? This, is, this is what an ancient sukkah would have looked like. And notice all, if you have palm fronds, those are the best because they're the biggest leaves. right? These are the biggest leaves. These are the greatest types of leaves. And then over here, we have one made out of cloth. Okay? But you're in the fields. You're guarding your fruit. You're guarding your crop. And at the, because it's that time of year when you take in your fruit crop, you're going to be eating the bounty of your harvest. And here are some fruits that would have been grown in the land. Okay? So it's that time of year. You're taking in, you're living in a sukkah. You're eating all your fruit. And then this brings us back to our verse. On the first day of Sukkot, you should take choice tree fruit, that fruit you just grew, all these branches, palm trees, leafy trees, willows of the brook, to make your sukkah. That's what, that's what this was talking about. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall live in Sukkot for seven days. All citizens of Israel shall live in Sukkot. 
So this is what Sukkot originally was. It was a harvest festival. You were out in the field. You were enjoying all the good things, uh, all, the, all the, um, the great produce that you had just, that you had just um, grew. That's what you were doing. Okay. So then in the second temple period, something changes, and that's called biblical interpretation. In the second temple period, we kind of get this concept that the Bible is becoming a thing. It's, it's not just we're writing books, books were still being written, but the Bible is something we look to in order to understand how to live our lives. So could somebody please read for me uh, these two passages? Volunteer? Great. And they found <coughs> written in the Torah, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the people of Israel should live in Sukkot during the festival of the seventh month, as it is written. Great. So why are they keeping the festival of Sukkot? Because they found it written. It's not, oh, my dad did this, and my granddad did that, and my mom did this, and my mom, grandma did that. No. It's, oh, it says you have to do this in this time. You know, we have to do it. And also remember, these are people coming back after the exile, too. Right? And then they live in Sukkot, you, you know, um, during the festival of the seventh month, as it is written again. Okay, can you continue, please? They celebrated the festival of Sukkot as it is written. Great. So they're celebrating as is written. And anybody who's ever... Yes? Just a question for you. I'm trying to figure out the timing of this. So originally we talked about the plant came over at a certain point in time to Israel. When is the plant mentioned in the Torah the first time? It's not. See, it's never. Right, right. This is, the plant is, is part of interpretation. Right, so it's never mentioned. Right, and we're going to explain how that happened. Yeah, it's never mentioned. All it says is beautiful fruit of a tree beautiful tree fruit. Um, so what we have here is when somebody says to you, oh, you need to follow this, this, this festival as it is written, well, how are you going to interpret as it's written? What's there? You need to interpret it. I need to tell you what's said here. I need to read it to you. I need to tell you what's said here. So we start getting the beginnings of biblical interpretation, right? And then when you get to the words pre Hadar in Hebrew, which is a really ambiguous three-word phrase, it could either mean you should take the fruit of the beautiful tree. So there's some kind of tr beautiful tree, maybe a date palm. Date palms are nice. Or maybe the beautiful fruit from a tree. I don't know, pomegranates are nice. Maybe I should take a pomegranate. Or the beautiful tree fruit. Maybe I should take like a cornucopia basket. Like what's going on? It's ambiguous. So we're interpreting, we're reading books, we're interpreting, and now all of a sudden we have a really difficult thing to, thing to, um, thing to do. So now this needs interpretation. It yells out, interpret me. This says, I need something very special. I need a very special kind of fruit. Now the thing about, the thing about rituals, and rituals such as Sukkot, the thing that makes rituals so special is that they're different. They're so different. So what makes a Christmas tree special, and what makes it special on Christmas, is that the rest of the year, it doesn't have those nice lights. You don't put a tree in your house the rest of the year. For the... Um, for the ball in Times Square. You don't, for most of the year, there's no giant ball coming down. It, it could have been a square. It could have been a triangle. The ball doesn't matter. It matters that it's different. We don't have a giant crystal orb coming down, right? A wedding dress, it doesn't matter that it's white. The white is just different. In India, it's red, right? There's nothing inherent to the white dress. So we know this especially in Judaism from the Passover Seder. Why is this night different from every other night? This is what makes it different. This is what makes it different. This is what, by being different, it's special. And that was, makes it ritualistic. 
right? So let's look at all the fruits in, and really every single holiday is different in its own way. Shavuot is the dairy. Um, Purim is the costumes. You know, every holiday has its own special niche. So let's look at fruit in ancient Israel. You have seven very regular fruits that you encounter every single day. Your olives, your grapes, your, pom your, your five. Your olives, your grapes, your pomegranates, your dates, and your figs. This was it. So when the Bible says you should take priyatsadar, beautiful fruit, beautiful tree fruit, you know, are you going to use one of these? No. You're going to use that special, different fruit that you see growing in the Persian overlord's garden. That's the special fruit. You're going to see, oh, it's different because you don't eat it. All you do is grow it. It needs a lot more water. It needs, it needs tons of water. It has thorns, all these special things about it, things that make it very different than anything else in ancient Israel. So, um, so, and once it became that, then later on it took on its own life in Judaism and became that $100 fruit that we know today. Okay? So that's how the etrog uh, made its way. Once it got to the land of Israel, it was interpreted into the Bible, and then it became part of the Jewish culture as time went on and on. Okay, so how valuable is an etrog? Very valuable. Very valuable. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very valuable. Now, I just want to show even more valuable than many of us know. Um, just uh, This will be the last part of the talk. So we often think about Jewish symbols, but there are a few symbols that are symbols of Judaism, and that's the difference. There's Jewish symbols, but there's symbols of Judaism. A symbol of Judaism that many of us know is the Mug and David, right? If you, want a, if you want a Jewish state, you put a, the Mug and David on the Jewish flag, right? Uh, the menorah, of course, here's the seal of Israel. In the synagogue here, we have the, the Luchot, the Ten Commandments, the menorahs, right? Um, here you have all on one on a tombstone. You want to say, this was a, here lies a Jewish person? You have, um, you have the menorah and the, and the, the Mug and David. And then also some people will wear the chai around their neck or get the tattoos and things like that. These are, these are, very, these are symbols of Judaism, not just Jewish symbols, right? And one of the things that makes a symbol of Judaism important is that you need to contrast yourself with other people, right? If everyone's on the same team, you don't need to have different, different flags, right? If everyone's all one country, you don't need different flags. So in this picture, really, we have the Jewish tombstone, contrasted with all the Christian ones, right? So you only need this Jewish thing if, if you're other than the Christian, okay? And so in the ancient world, the Jews needed to dis differentiate themselves, but they didn't need to differentiate themselves from the Christians because the Christians, it was very clear they were not Jewish. Here we have a church. The church was very clear. It had its Christian iconography. It, it was in many ways not Jewish in, in almost every single way. But there was another group of people the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were Israelite. And the Samaritans had a Torah. And the Samaritans had and still do. The Samaritans had and still do have a Torah. The Samaritans had and still do have synagogues. These people were very similar to the Jews. And the Jews had to differentiate themselves from them. Let's see just how similar they were. So this is a mosaic from a Samaritan synagogue. This looks like it could be in any Jewish synagogue. Really? We have, the temp we have the Ark right here, the Aron Kodesh. We have the menorah. And then over here, we have a zoom in. Can anyone figure out what this is? Shofar, good. What about this one? 
<laughs> dreidel? <laughs> dreidel or grogger? No, this is actually the fire pan from the temple. Okay? It's called a machta. A machta. Um, so, so what we have here, and I actually wonder, maybe in the synagogues they burnt incense too. I'm not sure if it's just from the temple. Okay, so this is a very, so to speak, Jewish kind of, kind of, um, kind of floor. Here we have another one. It's broken up, but we have the same thing. We have our nice Aron Kodesh. We have an extra thing here. This is the table from the temple, right? We have over here our nice menorah, flanked. Can you see that? The can you see the shofar? And then we have our our, our fire pan, right? So we're getting all this iconography. These are all very Jewish, you know, Torah items. A bagel, right? We do have a bagel. I, ne I never caught that. Yeah, yeah. We have a bagel. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good. We do. I never saw that. The, the world's first bagel. Um, and then what we have is, it's hard to see here. I'll show you um, over here. But if you wanted to have a lamp that was Samaritan, you would put different etchings on it. And here is, this is what we were just looking at. So if you look very closely, you have your ark, you have your menorah, you have your shofar, you have your fire pan, and you even have some oil for the menorah. Okay? And the same thing here, and so on and so forth. So this is so this is a Samaritan synagogue. This is a Samaritan oil lamp, okay? This is this is how in the ancient world a Samaritan would decorate things. Let's see about the Jews. So before we look at the arrows, nobody look at the arrows, okay? We have our ark. Our beautiful ark, we have our beautiful menorah, beautiful menorah, looks very similar. We have our fire pan, we have our shofar, and lo and behold, we have our lulav and etrog. It's the same exact thing, except for one small item. And for people who are very similar, it's easy to tell the difference. People, oh yeah, thank you. People who have never seen a kippah, a yarmulke, would think they're all the same. But people who know the differences between the kippot, and it's not just religious practice in Israel, it's what political party do you belong to? You know, um, how often do you pray? How do you wear it on the side, on the front? You know, it's, it's very meaningful. The closer you are to someone, the minor things become very important. So the one change here was that etrog. Okay? Here we have, a, um, here we have another synagogue in Tiberias, Tiberia. And what we're looking at here is the prime location of the lulav and etrog. And here it is. This is, it, this is probably the most beautiful large etrog in all of ancient mosaics, this one right here. Then we have another um, synagogue, this one from Beit Alpha. Now here we, I'll, I will say things start getting weird with the Jews in, in the ancient, in the, things, we start getting geese and, and lions everywhere. This starts happening too. The Samaritans don't do this. So, so it's not just the etrog in this one, but we, if, we, if we discount the lions and, the, and, and that, we have our Aron Kodesh, we have our menorah, we have our shofar, we have our fire pan, and we have our lulav and etrog. Twice. Okay? Yes? So time period-wise, when did it appear in Jewish literature or this versus when it came to Right, so it, it came from Persia, um, we, if we're going to guess, we don't know for sure, around 400 uh, BCE, 450, something like that, the, the, second, the beginning of the Second Temple period. This is from already the year 300, 400, 500, the Common Era. So these are synagogues when Judaism exists. 
Before that, I mean, of course, the Jew, Israelites became Jew. It's all the same people. But uh, at this point, we have Judaism versus Samaritanism and stuff like that. Okay? Um, so then what we have is in this, in this one, we have, this is interesting. We have a, um, a menorah. And it's hard to tell. I, don't, I still don't know what this is right here. It looks like a telephone kind of thing. Um, here's our shofar, right? Or, and then we have our etrog. And then we have the lulav almost in a vase. It's like bringing, you know, you can imagine bringing the vase. Um, you're keeping your lulav in a vase. And that's, that I don't, I don't know how to explain that. That's just something, something very interesting to me. Okay, then we have, we were talking about what makes something Jewish, right? This is a Jewish tombstone, a plaque from Rome. And what we have here is, if you want to say, this is, here lies a Jew, you've got your menorah, you've got your lulav, your etrog, and your oil for the menorah. That's it, okay? So it's becoming a symbol of Judaism. This I actually took in the Met in New York, and then they took it down. They keep, uh, they keep rotating in their Byzantine room. But here, this is an entrance to a, to a synagogue. We have our menorah, our shofar, our lulav and etrog, and our geese again, those beautiful geese. Okay, these are the coins from the Bar Kokhva rebellion, the, the second revolt. And these coins were basically saying, hi, we are Jews in the land. We are not Romans. We are going to rule this place. We are going to rule it Jewishly. We're going to use the ancient Israelite script even though it's not in use today, because we're going to try and be as, as biblical as we can. And how are we going to be so biblical? By using the etrog, the lulav and etrog, right there. It's from the Bar Kochva rebellion, the second century. This is, from, this is something that we don't really see much of at any other time period um, than the Byzantine period, but there was, Roman, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but this was a, a glass bowl, and you would put gold on the bottom of the bowl and gild it, to make a very special bowl that you would drink out of. And this was a Jewish bowl. And in this case, the lulav and etrog are prime right in the middle. And I don't think that's because they're more important than the menorah. I just think the menorahs, for uh, aesthetic reasons, it makes sense to go there and there so that it could all fit really nice. But you have your lulav, your etrog, and your shofar. That's what you got. Okay, and the same thing here we have in Rome, the entrance to a synagogue, and so on and so forth. Okay, and this is something I never heard of until I was studying the etrog. This is a bread stamp. In the ancient world, they would mark the bread as Jewish. And so how would you mark it as Jewish? It's kind of like the, the OU today. Right. It was like, <laughs> you can imagine the OU had a little etrog in it. Um, this little ball here, it's hard to make out. That little, little tiny ball, that's your etrog and that's your little love. Okay? And um, I think this is one of the last ones I'll do. This is, these two are in the Israel Museum, about five feet away from each other. And I think it's a real shame they didn't put them right next to each other because the juxtaposition is what makes them really important. So if you wanted a lamp in the Byzantine period to be Christian, you would have your nice cross. For, also, you'd have a bull's head. I don't know why they have that. Um, and then if you wanted the same lamp to be Jewish, you would have the menorah, the shofar, and the lulav, and etrog, right? So this was, this was what made, yeah. Oh, this is what made something a Jewish item as opposed to a non-Jewish item. And then, um, oh yeah, this is the last thing. Actually, what we're looking at here is something called a vine scroll motif. A vine scroll motif, it's, it's little scroll-like circles, but com combined with vines. This was a way that the ancient mosaicists 
would decorate churches throughout the land of Israel and Jordan. So this is very common in churches. So you would have your scrolls, kind of your circles of vines, and in them would be scenes of people, scenes of fruit, and so on and so forth. But when the Jews decided to make their vine scroll motif in Nirim, when they made their own, when they made their own one, um, you have the same, the same design, everything's the same, but the top, you're going to have, well, how are we going to say this is a Jewish place? Hey, we're going to have our menorah and two etrogim. Right? Just the menorah and the two etrogim. Okay, so that does it. This explains what, what we've done here tonight is we explain how this fruit came from China, from the forests of Yunnan, China, where it was growing free and wild. And then it made its way to India, where it became a little more valuable and a little more esteemed and was part of the medical doctor's uh, cabinet. And then it finally got to the, the paradise gardens of the Persian kings. And then finally it made its way to Israel, where it became the biblical fruit. It became the most important fruit. It became the most expensive fruit. So how important is the Xinguan? Not important. How important is the Mizalunga? It's okay. It's okay. How important is Wadrang? That's pretty cool. I like Wadrang. I would grow one in my, in my yard. How important is the Etrog? Uh, hundreds of dollars for each one, right? Um, and so that's it, everyone. Thank you for, thank you for listening. Uh, <clears throat> Yes. How did it get so crazy now that it has to be like this perfect So how did that happen? Yeah. So okay, so when I when I got engaged to my wife, um, I had to go buy a diamond ring. And the guy was there sitting with me with his thing and telling me which one was better and this carrot and that carrot, and I had no idea what he was talking about. But to but to him it was very important, these minor differences. That is the same thing going on in the halachic world of the etrog, is that people are looking for, is there the smallest dot? Is there not the smallest? And the reason I use that analogy is they're using that same oculus thing. Do you ever see that? Right? They're using that same like, little magnifying glass. It's, it's, if you're very invested in the halacha and you want to do something really well, you're going to go to the utmost degree. And also, it's, it's cultural. The ball rolls. Once one person takes it very seriously, another person is going to take it very seriously, and it rolls and it rolls and it rolls. Right. Yeah. Now, I think, and I know, there's different types. For instance, Chabad has their own. Yeah, the Yanoas. Right. So there's so many different varieties. Some Chabads are very expensive, and they all come from different parts of the world. Right. So the different, the different groups of Jews have started to take different types. Um, so... You remember we saw in the beginning what growing wild in, in Yunnan was that giant ninja giant? It's very similar to the Yemenite Jews. They have giant ones the size of footballs, right? That's the type. And so Moroccan Jews have their type, right? And so that, that, that's happened as time went on. And yeah, each one wants their own. It's, it's for cultural reasons or, or the aroma or, you know, it's, I happen to enjoy picking out an etrog. I, I, oh, obviously, I do. I wrote a book on it. For, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, I do. But yeah, it's it's fun. You get to you get to and see. It's, and it's like a pet rock. It comes in its own little thing. It comes this thing. Yeah. Right. And what what Suzanne was mentioning was you know taking it very seriously. Then there's the there's the beautiful. Um, I actually have I got from my bar mitzvah a silver etrog box. You know I have nothing else in my entire house in a silver box. <laughs> You know, there's nothing I own in the silver box except an etrog. So it's like it, it, it's become 
very important to esteem. And there are, other, there are three other parts of that bundle that nobody cares about. Right. Yes. Yeah, many questions. Earlier you showed, which I'm very interested, you showed all these farmers in their sukkah. They weren't Jewish. Right. How did they, because supposedly God told Moses to do this. Right. They weren't Jewish. How did they come up with that? And did God really tell Moses, or did people just start doing it? I'm well, curious, because well, it's the same thing, but it's Well, not. yeah. Um, so I think, I think what, what's happening is when you're in, when you're a farmer in the land, and this is the land's been around for thousands of years, and you farm in a certain way, this is it. It, it kind of guides you in certain ways. But I'm curious because they're, supposedly they're guarding it, guarding it from who, what, where. So the real thing, the guarding, is really mostly for animals, okay. because you're going to put tons of fruit out, right? And you're trying to you're trying to dry it, and then the foxes come. Also, other farmers might come and take it. Yeah, it's for protection. Um, and so you need to watch over your... It's almost like the scarecrow. But like a, God was pretty smart. Yeah, it... it he Right, in certain ways, you know, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the religion of Israel matches the agriculture of Israel. You know, and how everyone wants to explain that theologically with God and man is fine, but I think it, it's not a coincidence that the two match each other. Right. Okay, any other questions? Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.